Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, depending on where or good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Dave Krantz. I'll be moderating the seminar today. Um, I'm going to put things on hold for another minute or two to uh, let people join. I see the, the count climbing. So uh, let's give it another minute or two before we start. <coughs> Okay, I think we've kind of leveled off with the attendees. Um, again, good morning, everyone. My name is Dave Krantz. I'm one of the sales managers here at Particle Measuring Systems. Been with Particle Measuring Systems 20 years and uh, instructed at the PDA uh, for 19. Uh, joining me today is Blue. Um, she's our marketing quarter coordinator. Uh, thank you, Blue, for uh, setting everything up. And of course, our star of the show, Mark Hallworth, our senior uh, science advisor. Um, so today we're going to go through the Annex 1 update and significant, any significant changes to uh, environmental monitoring. Um, we had uh, a list of questions you sent in. Thank you very much. Um, most of those in review will be answered through the talk. So. If you don't think they were answered, please pose a question during the uh, presentation. And at the end, we'll have some time to try to answer as many questions as time allows. Um, at that point, if we have not answered your question, uh, we will follow up with an email. Um, but also keep an eye on, on uh, future webinars pertaining to Annex 1 as a, as a follow-up. Mark, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Dave. Hopefully everyone can hear me. Um, and again, thanks, Blue, for getting up at uh, ridiculously early in the morning compared to us on the East Coast here. Um, as Dave said, today's presentation is around uh, the revisions to Annex 1. It's a it's a pretty new document, so what's it mean? So it's, uh, there's a lot of talk around 
what it might mean. So here's, here's our interpretation of it. And, and it's not, not a blind interpretation. We were able to contribute to comments and feedback to some of the original drafts through the PDA and through the ISBE. So we've been as privy to the outside view of this as we can and um, and hopefully some good news. Okay, so EU GMP Annex 1, those changes for 2022. Deadline for operation is August 23, so it's a year from release. It was only released a couple of, about six weeks ago. And the document is sectioned quite differently now. And that's probably one of the biggest changes for our you know, perspective of what's going on. Now, certification, if you remember, it used to say certification should be clearly de differentiated from operational process monitoring. And then they left it all in the same chapter. And it flowed from paragraph four through to paragraph eight. So they weren't clearly differentiated, but they were one followed the other. And that was good. But now they are separate sections with a huge swathe in between. And we'll have a look at that. The focus really is on this contamination control strategy paradigm. And what's it mean? And we'll look through, uh, as we go through the slides, I'll refer back to this. But it, it, it's a central holistic approach on how each element of contamination interacts with the other and the facility as a whole. So it's not any single piece of data will fail you it's what does that data mean in the grand scheme of things holistically is this bad or is it you know kind of like a, a little bit of a speed bump over in the corner that doesn't actually affect the overall quality of my system and my processes now, quality risk management is the overarching guidance that this document's been written around and so we're, we're, we're leaning towards quality by design. So we're not trying to prove quality on the back end, but we're demonstrating quality throughout the process through risk management. And that's because of a lot of the new drug products, <coughs> biologics, ATMPs, et cetera, that are being brought to the market that don't have the luxury of, let me test for quality on the back end. So quality has to be built into it, which means you need a strategy to look for those elements where if things start to get out of control, we're able to respond to them. So the, the CCS and QRM fit hand in glove. The good news is environmental monitoring is essentially the same. Uh, there's not a lot of changes in real terms from the previous one. But there are some enhanced descriptions on how to do it and what it means that better aligns with quality risk management. So here's the sections of the document as is. So there were a handful of drafts that came out. The last one that was open for public review was draft 12. It then went through several more iterations and I think it was 15 that was then ratified for approval. So there's a scope, the principles, the quality system. Premises is, uh, premises is, is where we start to look at the application of environmental monitoring. 
So this is where certification exists. So it's the general guidance regarding the needs for the premises design and guidance on the qualification of those premises using the use of barrier technology. We dip into equipment right at the very end. They tucked a single paragraph in right at the very end that caused um, no end of consternation. Uh, they've revised that paragraph to something much lighter and we'll have a quick look at that on our way through to section nine viable and non-viable environmental and process monitoring and it's different from the guidance given in section four as here it applies to the ongoing routine monitoring and the design of a system and setting action limits and alert levels uh, so it also includes aseptic process simulation now it's a bit of an odd one that they threw that into environmental and process monitoring but it, it kind of hooks around this process monitoring are you doing the right techniques etc using the right equipment to ensure sterility assurance on the back end and then there's quality control and glossary but we can see between sections for certification and or qualif qualification as they call it but certification and monitoring we've got you know, equipment, utilities, personnel, production of specific technologies. This goes into the equipment, isolators, etc. And then finally into monitoring. So once you've defined how everything should fit together, how do we monitor it? So clear differentiation between certification and monitoring. And they use different tables too now, which again is, is a little different, but clearer. So section one, start at the start. The manufacture of sterile products is subject to special requirements to minimize microbial particulate and pyrogen. And you can see they've added pathogens and pyrogens as part of this um, requirement for the manufacture of sterile products. It, it, historically, we've focused on microbial and particulate. <clears throat> QRM priorities should include the appropriate design of this facility. And here's where quality risk management becomes a key to reading and applying the new annexes. So everything tends to lean towards how am I controlling those risks to finished product, of which monitoring those risks is one of them. 2.3, a contamination control strategy, this is its first mention, should be implemented across the facility in order to define all critical points and assess the effectiveness of the controls, design, procedural, technical, and organizational, and monitoring measures employed to risk, to manage the risk associated with contamination. And this is where we're talking about, it's not <clears throat> a single element, it's everything. What are we doing to control contamination, regardless of where it comes from? And so that means that we need, you know, those people that have the technical and process knowledge to determine what the potential sources are. So we've got a quick poll question for everybody uh, around a contamination control strategy. Just like to put this up for a second. And if you can answer that, so do you have a contamination control strategy yes a central team meets occasionally 
mostly a central software does most of the coordination no but we've got the elements for consideration no we need to rationalize what's required and we haven't even started looking at it yet All right, thanks very much. So it, it looks like, uh, you know, a third of people have a team that meet occasionally. A third, no, we're not doing it yet, but we've got all the elements together. So we do, we, you know, we've got a comprehensive monitoring system in place. We just need to know how they all fit together. So a pharmaceutical quality system for sterile products should also ensure that an effective risk management system is integrated. And the risk management is applied in the development and maintenance of that critical control strategy, contamination control strategy, sorry, <clears throat> to assess, identify, reduce, eliminate where, where possible, and control contamination risks. So the issue and management of the uh, contamination control strategy should be via your internal quality risk management systems. And all non-conformities such as sterility failures and environmental monitoring excursions or deviations should be adequately investigated. And they do go into what does adequate mean as we look at the monitoring elements. But all non-conformities should be investigated regardless to what depth of investigation that that requires. Section four, manufacture of sterile products, clean room and clean air equipment qualification uh, should assess the level of compliance following things such as in installed filter systems, airflow tests, air pressure differential testing, airflow detect direction and visualization. And then the, the repeat of that test. So you should have that as at least a baseline and the frequency of repeating it should form part of your contamination controls um, system. So it's, it's how do we <coughs> review and reflect upon the data and how does that help us identify elements or concerns elsewhere? And for clean room classification, the total of particles equal to or greater than 0.5 and 5 micron should be measured and as we know, Whenever they say should, it means you must. <clears throat> but here they've put not specified. <clears throat> and the measurement should be performed at rest and in simulated operations in accordance with the limits in table one. So rather than in operation, so you have to elbow people out the way actually trying to fill real product, you can do this during a simulated fill. That isn't necessarily a media fill or part of your APS. It could be simulated operations singularly for the requirement of delivering this information. And there's two caveats here. One of them is that five micron is not specified for the ISO 5 equivalent. And that's because ISO 14644 part one dropped it. So 
initially in the earlier drafts there was this one micron use a different size such as one micron there was this you know this hullabaloo where it was like well what are we going to do do i now need a three channel particle counter to monitor my environments 0.5 1 and 5 what do i need to do well it, it was originally a misinterpretation from the iso revision and that's where you couldn't qualify a clean room singularly at five micron because there weren't sufficient particles in the air uh, to determine that qualification. Now at 0.5 and 5, you're now qualifying it at 0.5 micron and you're using the M descriptor to define what the limit is for your five micron particles, which would have been 29 if you'd have put the maths in. So although it says not specified here, the classification including five micron may be considered were indicated by a CCS, i.e. you use the M descriptor, or by historical trends. So we've always had this value, we're always going to use this value. So whatever you've historically used within your clean room, keep using it. For grade D, what they're saying is that in operation, this essentially becomes ISO 9, but they're not really happy with ISO 9. It should be tighter than that. And so when we're looking at the production of sterile medicinal product, the grade D environments shouldn't be clean, not classified. In their operation, they should be controlled to a certain limit and your own internal quality system determines what that limit is. The speed of air supplied by unidirectional airflow should be justified in the qualification period. Airflow should prove homogeneous air in the speed of 0.36 to 0.54, i.e. 0.45 meters per second at the working position unless otherwise scientifically justified in the CCS. So if you've got speeds as low as 0.23 meters per second at the work surface, at the working height. Now, some of these working heights, uh, it's difficult to read an actual air velocity because all of a sudden the air is going horizontal from a vertical plane because it's actually striking objects on the way down. So you should be measuring slightly above whatever your change of direction of airflow is and that can be demonstrated through your airflow visualization study so if you do find that you have suitable air cleaning you know that that air shower effect that's occurring at 0.23 your airflow visualization demonstrates that the uh, particle counts that you take demonstrate that you're in control of those environments your microbial monitoring demonstrates you're in control this is where it becomes part of a ccs no single value should discount or discredit a sample area or a location from being under control it's just under control to a different set of parameters but control can be demonstrated through other avenues the microbial contamination level in the clean rooms should be determined as part of clean room qualification so we're talking about microbial qualification at the same time as the particle qualification, i.e. following the ISO guidance, 14644. But now the sample points don't necessarily have to overlap 100% because those sample locations should be based upon a documented risk assessment. And the values given here, now this is the same table that we'll see in section 9 on environmental monitoring for air sample, settle plates, contact plates. So we're looking at, you know, the 
overall cleanliness of the air and any surfaces associated with contact locations, but the operator element is missing from this initial table. So the fingerprint test is missing from this earlier review of just the premises. We're, we're not considering operators yet. We're only considering the premises. And here's where we just dip into section five, 5.9. Particle counters, including sample tubing, should be qualified. The manufacturer's recommended specification should be considered for tube diameter and bend radii. The tube length should typically be no longer than a meter unless justified and the number of bends minimized. Now, if you remember, it, it, there was a, a, a balloon went up regarding this whole problem around the one meter tubing length. The original text in draft 12 said particle counting should be qualified. The tubing length should be no greater than one meter with a minimum number of bends and bend radius should be greater than 15 centimeters. So they've, they've softened all of that. And a lot of that was a misinterpretation in ISO 14644 Annex C that said for macro particles only, those particles greater than five micron, not equal to and greater, but greater than five micron, you should <clears throat> use tubing no less than or no more than a meter because of the precipitation of large particles. So here they're saying that follow the manufacturer's recommended specifications. It shouldn't typically be longer than a meter unless you demonstrate or qualify that you'll, you've got suitable data. Now, how do you demonstrate that? Either through an investigation of a review of your sample tubing lengths and how they fit with the CCS. So you adjust your alert and action limits to suit any losses that you might get through lengths greater than a meter because you will get particle loss in a meter of tubing. It's just not significant enough. So now where do we draw that significant line relative to monitoring? And certainly for certification, a short length of tube should be used. And they, they call that out, portable particle counters with a short length of tubing for classification purposes, because the quality of the measurement now becomes quite important. It's this one piece of data that calibrates your clean room. But for monitoring, it really becomes more as how does this data fit within the sea of data that I'm getting? How does it show me what's going on with my facility minute to minute, hour to hour, batch to batch, year to year? So it, it, it's data in context versus an absoluteness of measurement. And where the measurement is important, sample tubing is a, is a bad thing from a particle counting perspective. You do get a lot of precipitation of those larger particles. So now we move into section nine and the manufacture of sterile products. <clears throat> and the site's environmental and process monitoring program forms part of the overall CCS. And it's used to monitor the controls designed to minimize the risk of microbial particulate contamination. It should be noted the reliability of each element, viable, non-viable, and APS. So they've thrown in aseptic process simulation into this because they should fit together, but nothing the reliability of each of the elements when taken in isolation is limited and shouldn't be considered individually, nor to be an indicator of asepsis. But when considered together, their reliability is enhanced. And that's when you can start to see where control over those risks really come about. So the correlation of risk to the CCS is 
where there's a high likelihood and the impact is significant from a risk perspective, this is where your monitoring plan should focus. Now, do you have to monitor down in the controlled, not classified, or the grade D where it's not very likely and the impact would be trivial because it's mitigated? Doesn't mean it's eliminated, but it shouldn't be the focus of your monitoring intention. The intention tends to drag itself up into the grade A core and then bleed slowly out from there. So paragraph 9.4 was um, quite a wordy, quite a weighty one. An environmental monitoring program should be established and documented. A risk assessment should be performed in order to establish a comprehensive environmental monitoring program, including the locations, frequency of monitoring, monitoring methods, and incubation conditions. So an, a risk assessment forms the foundation, really, of your environmental monitoring process. It's a very early paragraph after just describing what environmental monitoring was about. And it says you must start with a risk assessment. And that means that the inputs, the equipment that you use, how critical a process is, any historical EM data that you have, a review of the system, how operators move within that system, the process steps, any certification data, changes to the microbial flora isolated from those environments. It should include the, you know, the, the data that you already have. And if it's a new facility, we have to use a risk assessment to draw a line in the sand, as it were, and then come back to that after a period of time and review the risk assessment to ensure that you're actually capturing what you expected to happen. Because although you might build a process around a certain set of parameters, when you let the operators in, they may well work more efficiently and efficiently isn't necessarily per SOP. And so we either change our SOP because what they're doing is, is correct, or we correct the operator to the SOP, which isn't always the, you know, the shrewd, shroudest thing to do. So the risk assessment at the end of it will yield where the sample points are, the frequency with which you monitor them, and that all comes back up to here, the location and the frequency. If you're getting into the red zone, that frequency is elevated. As you get into the further, you know, the grade B, grade C, grade D areas, that frequency is reduced. And reduced to what? Well, it's reduced according to the risk assessment, and the risk assessment follows the CCS because that CCS really becomes, you know, how does each element interact with each other and how are the risks being managed under your QRM? So here's where it all starts to sort of flow downhill with monitoring being, you know, one of those cornerstones of how do I respond and how do I demonstrate quality risk management, which allows me to not necessarily parametric release, but allows me to release in the knowledge of, you know, more greater confidence. So the methods of sampling, what equipment do I use? What techniques do I use for surfaces or, or even microbial sampling? Settle plates versus dynamic monitoring versus RMM. And the incubation conditions that exist to help uh, ensure that the growth of microbes, uh, you know, is, is complete. So we've got a second poll question now, and that is, 
how was your current sample plans for routine monitoring defined? Was it inherited? You know, we, we do it because that's what we've always done. It was based upon the ISO requirements because that's what they say. You know, here's my sample points, 15 in this room, whatever it might be, based upon the square root of floor area. It was based on a documented risk assessment. It's based upon historical data and EMPQ data and all of the above. Right, thanks very much. It looks like you know over sixty percent of uh, of everybody are doing it based upon historical data and risk assessment. So it's a documented system, which is absolutely perfect. Um, for those that haven't yet implemented a risk assessment to define their sample points, uh, that's one of the, as I said, one of the the cornerstones of why we're doing the you know environmental monitoring it should be based upon that risk assessment that ties to qbd or, uh, or qrm so time to have a look at your systems and maybe reflect on where those sample points are based and seek guidance we're here to help so routine monitoring of clean rooms clean air devices should be performed throughout operational uh, all critical stages including equipment setup so this setup is it, it was there in the last version as well so they're just merely re-emphasizing this point there's no point in filling in what could have perceivably been a poorly set up area such that you've invited contamination in and then the first round of vials passing through the area may well be questionable so by monitoring during that setup phase within the isolator and some of this heralds back to the earlier versions that excluded setup, um, where it talked around, you know, equipment setup and staging should be performed in a separate area. But now with a lot of clean rooms and isolators, it's all set up within that same area. So let's make sure that, you know, we've got good clean practices, aseptic practices being channeled through right to the end point. The monitoring of grade A, should demonstrate the maintenance of aseptic processing conditions during critical operations. Monitoring should be performed at locations posing the highest risk. You know, if, I think if we did a chase for the word risk in this document, it's something like 200 times or more. The selection of monitoring locations and the orientation and positioning of the sampling devices should be justified and appropriate to obtain reliable data from the critical zone. So, it's required to specify the orientation of the sample probe, i.e. towards the airflow, how high it is above the process. If you, this is one of those where if you go too close to the process, you end up getting a lot of process signature. Anything moving will generate particles. Fill heads, fill needles, overspray from the, from the needles themselves. 
all of that disturbance of air movement will generate particles of a certain size. So we're only monitoring at 0.5 and 5, but there's contamination that may well exist. So environmental monitoring is monitoring the quality of the environment, not necessarily process monitoring, which is where you would be in the, you know, more in the bowels of the equipment, looking for any particles that are generated. But those particles, according to your airflow study, should be washed away from the risk zones and you know recirculated or blown away from the you know those critical zones and the and the critical core so you should always have essentially the highest quality of air as it immediately washes over the process that poses the highest risk what happens after that really is secondary that's where any microbial contamination you know we want to keep an eye on it so our sample points for particle would typically be slightly above the process plane and our sample points for microbial would be adjacent to the sample plane i.e that much closer to the process and especially in the gray day where we're basically trying to count zeros and we're now looking for something you know it's a rare occurrence to find any kind of growth cfu in a gray day zone so the closer we get to those high risk zones, the lower we get into the dirty air, if you will, the better. And that's not a, necessarily a demonstration of the environment, the quality of the air washing over the process. We're now trying to get you know, so much closer to the, the, the critical elements that affect product quality. Because particles, we don't really look for particles in finished product until they're 10 and 25 microns in size. So monitoring the air should be a real-time indicator of the quality of the overall environment relative to potential risks. Now, the highest risk is microbial, which is why we try and be so much more um, intentional about trying to find microbes. Whereas we know we can find particles in any moving system, even, you know, clean bagged robots will generate particles within an environment. So we know they exist, but what's their deleterious effect? And sampling methods should not pose a risk as contamination to the manufacturing operations. So this is where the small sample heads being installed within a facility rather than whole instruments being put into critical zones where you now have to worry about the quality of the air coming out of those critical instruments and the turbulence that they may well cause to, uh, to the airflow patterns that you've just proven to be nice and linear. Appropriate alert levels and action limits should be set uh, for the results of viable and non-viable particle monitoring. Again, this is very similar to what, was what we had before. Um, the limits are described in table five and the maximum viable limits are described in table six. We'll look at these. However, more stringent action levels, action limits, sorry, may be applied based upon historical trending data. Both viable and total particle levels should be established based upon the results of clean room qualification testing and periodically reviewed. So this is that ongoing review of the section four. And there's this note four, so that when we look, talk about alert levels, uh, 
for grade A, B, C, and D, there should be set such adverse trends, i.e. number of events or individual events that indicate a deterioration of environmental controls are detected and assessed. Back down in 9.15, note two, this is language taken straight from the previous version where the occasional indication of a macro particle count, especially greater than five micron, may be considered to be false due to electronic noise, stray light coincidence. These are functions that may well create a five micron particle. However, consecutive or regular counting may be indicative of a possible contamination failure. So occasional is okay, but consecutive and regular is, is an indicator that something might be going wrong. Now, how big a number should we be looking for about consecutive and regular? Well, it, it talks about a low level. So a low level, is that 10, 20, 90? They don't prescribe a number to this. It should be determined by, believe it or not, your CCS. So it's it's what number indicates a deterioration that can be detected and addressed in a timely manner. <coughs> so there are no details there. What we do have, though, up here, alert levels and action limits. So alert level versus action limit. So typically, a level is a tolerance threshold. That's something that we would set based upon our data. And a limit is a maximum permissible value. So this is where we sort of go to the table to try to define what limit is actually being prescribed for a, like a hard stop, if you will. And the trend must take into consideration the micro microbial flora and fauna. So when we're trending data, Increasing numbers of excursions from action limits or alert levels. So if I had five for the first batch and 10 for the next batch and 15 for the third batch, I'm seeing an increase in contamination level. So that's my medium term trending. My short term trending is this um, sample to sample events that I can N of M. So did I get two of two, three of three? Is this a singular event that occurred? Is it an occasional or is it something more regular? So I can do that in a short term trend. Medium trending would be per batch and long term trending would be per month, per quarter or per year. Monitoring of grade C and D is singularly based on risk assessment, although the limits are there. It would be unusual for grade C and D clean rooms to reach their maximum limits. And if they do, how we respond to those limits and levels should be defined in our risk assessment. If action limits <clears throat> are exceeded, operating procedures should prescribe a root cause investigation and assessment of the potential impact. So if an action limit, this is the higher level of, um, of tolerance, this is the hard stop they should have a root cause follow-up. If alert levels are exceeded, this is our own prescribed levels, they should have a process within the SOP to follow. So what do we do when things go wrong? So that's our N of M. If I see two of two or three of three, what do I now need to do to react to that? But if I have high counts above my absolute limits, then that's a demonstration of loss of control and they're the ones I should be responding to 
with a root cause follow-up, i.e. why did this happen and what can be done to prevent it occurring again. This is the new table, and again, we have the same values as last time, so 0.5 and 5 micron are both being monitored. There's no 1 or 3 micron channel in here. It's pretty much the same as it was last time, where we're monitoring uh, with a frequency that will be able to give us a response, a statistically valid response to the environment. This note two is exactly the same language as was used in paragraph I think 12 or 13 of last of the last version, where it was able to say, look, you know, it's a frequency mode when we start to look at five micron. They occur randomly, and the randomness of that occurrence should be verified against the impact to the overall quality. If your five micron go up and your 0.5 micron don't, you're looking for a large particle generating event. If they trend together, it's probably an environmental issue. The grade A should be monitored continuously for particles at 0.5 and 5 with suitable sample flow rates of at least one CFM, 28 liters per minute. And the reason for that really is they, they take a larger sample so that you get a st more statistically significant set of data, especially if it's one sample to the next. So when you start tying those data together, and it also allows for those longer lengths of tubing. The low flow rate instruments should have very limited uh, tubing on them at all, certainly not as much as a meter, whereas the 1CFM, the high flow rate instruments, uh, you're able to start getting around sample tubing limitations. The system should frequently correlate each individual sample result with the action limits at such a frequency that potential excursions can be identified. So what, what is the suitable sample interval that reflects your process? And most people go for one minute sampling and it's not um, like temperature or differential pressure where it takes a snapshot every minute. This is a sum over the course of a minute and then reports at the end of it. And it's recommended that a similar system be used for the grade B, uh, such that you know the system responses can be reported back in a timely manner. This is where we say you know you should be looking at continuous monitoring for those grade B areas immediately surrounding the grade A, and the backgrounds, corridors, change areas, interlocks. They can be done portably once per shift or once per hour or whatever frequency might might well be determined as part of your risk assessment. In the case where contaminants are present due to the processes involved, so where there are hazardous processes, then a different approach is required. And this is where the simulated filling with no powder to identify the baseline and then otherwise during normal operations monitor before and after and we use that simulated fill to demonstrate a, a baseline that would be ordinarily you know, maintained. And that, um, that simulation should be either quarterly or monthly, depending on whatever your processes are or your staff turnover. If you have a high frequency of staff turnover, then you know, we need to make sure that that baseline is, is a baseline. It, it's, you know, it's continuous regardless of whoever's doing it. 
A 921, the size of monitoring sample using an automated system is a function of the sampling rate of the instrument used. So it's not a cubic meter sample. What happens with a cubic meter is you basically smooth data. So you have either a rolling cubic meter, in which case you allow for the zeros to smooth them out, or you have 35 minutes, 35 minutes, 35 minutes, in which case any zero then pulls down the response time. So what we're looking at here is minute to minute monitoring and with an analysis of each minute relative to the alert and action limits that we saw in the previous slide. And that then gives us an opportunity to have a, a response in a timely manner. The microbial monitoring should be frequent using a combination of settled plates, volumetric air samplers. And viable particulate monitoring should also be performed within the clean room when normal operations are not occurring. So if you monitor on, you know, two or three days a week, what do we do on the down days? It's advised that you go back into those areas, do a much reduced monitoring program to demonstrate that those rooms are still in control, such you don't have to do any elevated sampling or sterilizing or cleaning on the back of uh, a high count during a downtime. So it's not full monitoring necessarily when it's in, in an at-rest state, but it's advisable to stay on top of it. And continuous viable air monitoring in the gray day zone, e.g. air sampling or settle plates. So this is where it's saying you should be continuously monitoring in those critical areas. Now that means either using settle plates to give you that continuous qualitative data, or it means using dynamic air samplers, where you would have to swap out the plate frequently. Uh, there are certain techniques where you can leave a plate exposed under low flow air conditions for several hours, and, uh, and we've probably got a presentation on those tucked away. Um, and it's also, allows for the adoption of suitable rapid or automated systems should be considered by manufacturers. So now it's promoting RMM. It's a new technology and it's difficult to implement against traditional techniques, but it certainly is part of a CCS, a, a highly suitable element for complementary data. If what I'm trying to do is to continuously monitor an environment, I might well use a combination of particle counting, microbial sampling, and RMM to give me a fuller look at what's happening within my critical environments. It isn't necessarily a replacement instrument, but it is absolutely a complementary instrument. So sampling methods and equipment used should be fully understood, and their recovery efficiency means that, that, that growth promotion test before and after the use of settle plates to demonstrate you know, whether or not I'm actually taking the best sample I can. And the, um, the sampling method chosen, so do I use contact plates or swabs? The limits for microbial growth are given in, in table six, and here we can see it's the same as we saw earlier in table two with the addition of glove prints, five fingers on each hand, any growth in grade A must be investigated. Grade C and grade D, gowning sampling is now based upon risk, QRM, and part of your CCS. And note two, 
limits applied talk about CFU throughout the document. But if you're using a different technology, such as RMM, you may be using biocounts, AFU, autofluorescing units, providing their validated and correlated to CFU. And that's why having them as complementary really helps. So that's the end of this kind of fairly brief assessment as to what the environmental monitoring landscape looks like. As I said in slide one, it's not overly different to what we've been doing all this time. It's just a slightly different look at how best to do it. Dave? Dave? Sorry about that, Mark. I forgot That's my right. microphone was muted. <laughs> Talking so, and nobody's hearing you, Dave. How's there you going? go. Sorry. Um, so take a couple minutes here. Um, looking, I was sorting through the questions. But I also like to note to all of our attendees how particle measuring systems, world leader in particle counter and um, technology. Also, um, we offer a wide variety of things that will help with the changes with Annex 1. On the screen, you see what we call our pedal, uh, but uh, it shows what we can offer to help you. Um, for instance, all the way to the left services, we have an advisory group which Mark uh, champions here in the US. Um, that advisory group can do things like a gap analysis um, where we can evaluate your current monitoring uh, system versus what the new Annex 1 may say. Uh, risk assessments are very common, um, but anything that you need uh, help with, SOPs, things like that, we can provide. Um, also, contamination monitors, we have a wide variety of sensors, portables, uh, particle counters, microbial samplers, uh, fixed systems, world leader there. Um, for instance, our Facility Pro, which is the built from the ground up, the only system designed specifically for the life science industry. Um, training and education, like you attended today. Thank you for, for joining us. Uh, we have close to 2,000 registered for these uh, the two different uh, times for the uh, webinar here today. Um, I see a variety of questions <clears throat> here. Uh, some of you seem to have a problem downloading the handouts. Um, if you go to our website, pmeasuring.com, um, we have what's called the Knowledge Center. We not only have those four handouts, but also we have a wide variety of tech notes. Um, some of them even uh, authored by uh, Mark over the years. Um, so we over, can... Uh, over the years, Dave, I've been doing this a long time. Yeah. Was yeah. <laughs> it 23 years? Yeah. Uh, so questions. Um, what do you recommend? One of the questions was statistical technique. Uh, I'm assuming uh, some of the areas where you have to look at uh, data interpretation, things like that. What do you recommend as a as a technique? There's 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 a handful when it comes to reviewing. Um, and I'm going to focus just on the particle counting side of things for now because statistical techniques for microbial kind of takes on a life of its own with with the small numbers involved more often than not. 
But if you're reviewing what your alert and action levels limits need to be, <clears throat> then there's a couple of ways of doing it. One of them is is manually you go through and you look at the frequency that five micron events occur. So you would pick a batch, look at the data. Um, you can statistically analyze how many alerts you had and how many action levels you had. So a percentage compliance, if you will. And based upon you know that sort of manual reporting, you can determine how many you want to look at as an ongoing program. Uh, a lot of the times, if we're doing this, the zeros kind of not blind a lot of the useful data. So one of the programs we use, I don't know if I'm plugging anyone in particular, but we use Mintab to review a lot of our data. That gives us our mean standard deviation and upper and lower control limits for data where we're able to smooth out those zeros and focus on when things do start to go wrong, what is considered to be high relative to the normal count values versus you know a, a catastrophic event. But there's few that will tell you your N of M frequency without actually looking and reviewing data manually. Um, there seems to be a couple of questions about the one meter tubing length. Why or what data or what did they use to determine one meter tubing length? So that that was, you know, I kind of broached on it briefly. Annex one, sorry, ISO 14644 part one, appendix C talked about monitoring macro particles. That's particles that are only greater than five micron. And it was for certain industrial industries where large particles are a concern, but their clean rooms are there to control them. Uh, and they have clean processes to control them. Where large particles are concerned, they said, we recommend using no more than a, a meter of tubing because of the precipitation rates. Annex one picked up on that and said, well, we're also looking at five micron, so we're gonna use a meter maximum. And that was the initial concerns. They stepped back from that based upon, you know, support from the, you know, the guidance bodies that give them support, uh, where preferred would be a meter. But if you have to go beyond a meter, follow manufacturer's recommendations. And in fact, the ISO 14644 committee working group or the, the um, standards group have brought out a working group 15 that will be releasing a new technical support note for best practices that talks about isokinetic probes, bend radii, valves, uh, any transitions of tubing. So what are the best practices for using tubing relative to losses? So that's a document that we hope to get out by the end of the year, all being well, and that should certainly help reinforce why a meter isn't an absolute minimum or isn't an absolute maximum, I should say. It's it's a data point on a curve. And where whether you're using 0.7 meters or 1.3 meters, you should understand what the impact is. So they've stepped away from this hard one meter but if you do need to go beyond a meter, you should understand what the implications are. And the implications are predominantly 
precipitation of the five micron particles. So if you know that's happening, you can look up on a table. If you're within two meters, you can look up on manufacturer's data to determine what your losses are. And based upon those losses, you can then apply that as part of your CCS to your alert and action limits and say, look, I would ordinarily set my limit at 30, but I have a 10% loss, so I'm going to set it at 27. Don't try and amplify the particle counters to meet what it should have been. That's a that's a very dangerous game. We, we tried that several years ago, and, and um, it's not linear. Uh, particle counters follow a curve 1 over D to the 2.08 as prescribed in ISO and that changes based upon occupation rates. So you would have to understand the particle distribution within a clean space to be able to amplify them correctly and it's a log amplification. So it's a very difficult thing to implement. Just reduce your alert and action limits to that that your data is showing you. So if, we, if we're monitoring, we'll get a baseline. If we see a change to that baseline, sample to sample, batch to batch, week to week, then we'll respond to it as part of a demonstration of loss of control. But remember, it's a single channel from a single instrument from a single point. Is that a catastrophic failure um, as part of the CCS? Well, that's where we use the, the, the other elements to you know, support it. So we have, speaking of the CCS, one of the questions is how frequent do you, do you advise to revise the CCS once developed? I think once you've developed it, <laughs> and that's the hard part, is to see how all of these elements interact. And um, it, it, it should be part of your, uh, it, it, again, I'm trying, it's a working document. It never goes to bed, as you, as it were. If you start to see adverse trends, then you go back to the CCS to see how that um, how that works into your um, impact for risk assessment. So it's it's a living document that um, you always go back to and correct. But if I had to draw a line in the sand to say, no, we should formally review it and what the impact is based upon input. We all do a quarterly review of our data. Everybody has to. So we have a quarterly review of our EM data. That would be a good point to go back into the CCS to see how that EM data may well change our practices moving forward. So it's a living document, but quarterly if you if you have to create milestones. So I think this question pertains to something that's terminally sterilized. But the question basically, do we do they count all growth on the microbial or just the ones that may be heat resistant? That's probably more a question for one of my colleagues. But um, if you're if you're in terminal sterilization, then any growth that comes out on the back of or, or prior to terminal sterilization unless you have it you know if, if you're saying your terminal sterilization has a d to the six and you see one cfu that's either well they're all objectionable really according to dr scott sutton um then i would be concerned at any 
and then meet um kind of mitigate that using my terminal sterilization process rather than allow for certain ones to exist or only concern myself about certain ones i would say i have 100 cfu i have a d to the six that means i have a probability of 0.01 cfu at the back end regardless of flora or fauna okay and then probably the last one here because we're running out of time um do i need to qualify a locker room during operational state so i'm assuming a gowning room or something like that they're talking about so yeah locker rooms are clean not control you know controlled not classified um a change area a gown room i would i would definitely include those sample points as part of my empq because i would want to know um the level of particulates being generated as part of um as, as part of standard gowning and therefore know whether or not i've got control over that process now, is it getting worse is it improving have i chosen the wrong type of gown you know if i'm using tyvek i know i'm going to generate a lot of fibers now you're as part of the ccs your air pressure as you open from one grade to the next that air shower moving from one zone to the next should maintain any contamination within that enclosed space and not allow it to transport into the next clean uh, area up so it, it does need monitoring uh, the frequency of monitoring is fairly low and if i was looking at a, a system i would either automate it to give me a real-time fingerprint on what is going on within that clean room to make sure that I do only have two or three operators because five really makes a difference, especially when they're gowning and not just for gowning comfort, you know, everybody's bumping into each other, but also for the number of particles generated when gowning. Mm -hmm. Well, we've run out of time. Thank you, Mark, for an excellent job uh, with the webinar. Any questions um, that we did not answer, please, uh, you can send a note to info at pmeasuring.com. Uh, come to our website, pmeasuring.com. Check out the Knowledge Center, um, wide variety of tech notes and um, all sorts of papers uh, that may help you. Yeah, there's, our, there's our blog as well, Dave. I use a lot of the questions that we don't get to as sort of seed questions for um, answering through our blog site. And, um, and I can give a fairly more comprehensive, specific answer when I get there. Super. Thank you everyone for attending um, and looking for the future for more webinars. Have a good day. Bye all.